This week on Wealth Tracker, we in for an explosive acceleration of the bull market. Legendary value investor Jeremy Grantham makes the case in a rare interview. Next on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. New York Life, along with Mainstay's family of mutual funds, offers investment and retirement solutions so you can help your clients keep good going. Additional funding provided by Thornburg Investment Management, Active Management, Flexible Perspective. Ku and Patricia Ewan through the Ewan Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences. Rosalind P. Walter and the Fairholm Foundation. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. There are very few investors who can lay claim to recognizing a major market turning point, let alone several of them. This week's guest is one of them. Legendary value investor Jeremy Grantham is the co-founder of the global investment management firm GMO, where he is chief investment strategist and member of its asset allocation team. The firm oversees about $74 billion in assets for mostly institutional clients. Now, Grantham is known for his prescient calls about those rare tectonic shifts that change the investment landscape. He saw the tech stock crash of the late 1990s coming a decade in advance. A decade later, he warned of the developing credit bubble, its devastating collapse, and then called for the market bottom nearly to the day in March of 2009. Recently, he has been predicting a possible market melt-up, a powerful late-stage two- to three-year-long market rally that could carry the S&P 500 up as much as 60%. Now, unfortunately, that could be the final gasp before another major market decline. As Grantham put it in a recent report, his judgment of a possible melt-up is based on a mishmash of statistical and psychological factors. I asked him to describe the mishmash. Basically, everything that has to do with uh, the stock market moving up and psychological attitudes to it. There's nothing too trivial or too important that you shouldn't look at because each era has so much distance uh, between the previous one that you can't expect the world to be identical. When you're comparing 1929 and shoe cleaners giving tips to financial moguls, and 1999, uh, it's a different world. So if you think you can use a consistent statistical set, the one or two you could find would probably give you nonsense results. Mm -hmm. So you have to go for the spirit of the exercise. What really happened in 29? What really happened in 99? And there was enormous crazy behavior in the internet, so we all lived through that. But there was also similar absolute craziness in investing in the stock market. Everyone was margined in 1929. Yes. 90% leverage was commonplace. The market only went up. People wrote articles in serious women's journals, famously, that the, the kind of stock market was the only place to put your money and you should expect to compound at 14% a year. And that kind of nonsense that we had repeated in uh, 2000, where the Dow would go to 35,000 relatively quickly. Um, so everything. And uh, some of them quite technical. I have no hesitation in ignoring some this time and making a big fuss of them in 1929. And so no 
proper, no politically correct statistician is going to be able to handle this easily. But I am not that. <laughs> so you, when you were just describing what happened in 1929, which I did not know, but certainly the excesses of the tech bubble and crash, or the tech bubble, I should say, I did know, and I certainly, and, and again, that you predicted. What I predicted was that like every great bubble of its kind, it would blow up spectacularly. And we actually said in print, got into The Economist, that the S&P would decline by 50 and the NASDAQ by 75. And the NASDAQ had the good grades to go down 82 and a half and the S&P declined by 50. So we predicted the collapse, but that's easy. Yes. Right. Much, much more difficult to predict a bubble because they start out of nothing and for reasons which are not e easily discerned even looking back. And the only thing that looks to me today to be moderately predictable is that last phase of a bubble because it has had in 1929 and 2000 and in Japan. So we've been very right. lucky, by the way, we've had two great bubbles, Japan and, and the tech bubble. And, and they have this distinctive feature that they really accelerate. And that's the melt up. And that's the melt up phase. And the smallest of those was 60% in 21 months. Right, a 60% rise in 20 months. And in 1928, 29, they did over 100%. So why do you think that we're laying the groundwork for a melt up? Because when you were just describing what the excessive speculation in 29, and certainly the excessive spe speculation that occurred in 1999 and also in the housing market, uh, in, in you know, 07, in, in 07, right, in 06. Um, wh where do you see that kind of speculation except maybe in Bitcoin? Well, we only saw that kind of speculation at the end. I see. So that's the final. What phase. I'm saying is it begins to look interesting. Mm. If you go back just a year, it was one of the most boring market advances we have ever seen. Right. And not believed. Not believed. No. They were fighting it every inch of the way. I think we can agree that today, we are not collectively fighting the bull market. No. The press, the players are kind of now rolling with the punches, if you will, and, and, and are much more friendly disposed in tone to new highs. Early last year, we had a week with three new highs and no one mentioned it on the press, no one mentioned it on TV. And I, w I was looking hard and I couldn't believe it. Three new all-time highs and no one cares. Right. But we, we have three new all-time highs early this year, and everybody was talking about it every day. So that's the kind of thing, talking of touchy-feely, that's the kind of thing you should be looking for, is the curve of the market advance accelerating. And it definitely has been for the last uh, about three months. You can go back three or four months and you can say, if this keeps going, about 2.5% a month then in nine months, we will have hit my minimum definition, 21 months going up 60%. And mm -hmm. let's say, it, of course, it will slow down. It may never happen at all. We're dealing, we're dealing with great uncertainties when you deal with bubbles and melt-ups. There's been so few of them. But by the way, there's been very, very few nine years of bull market in a row. Right. So by any measure, you basically have said, I think, I'm not quoting you exactly, but it, the, the market's expensive, the, the, right? By traditional standards, the market is very expensive, extremely expensive in right. the U.S. 
That is not the case outside the US. We ran a test in 07. 07 was an interesting bubble. It was a housing bubble. Yes. But it was not a classic US stock market bubble. And compared to 2000, it was nothing. And we were saying, so why does it feel like the first truly global bubble, which was one of my quarterly letters? Um, and so we ran a test across all countries. And we said, how many of you are ahead of one sigma? In other words, a strong bull market, but nothing like a true bubble. And the answer came back, something like two thirds of all the countries were over one sigma. And we went back and we found that that was substantially higher than it had ever been except drum roll 1929, which it, it was a dead heat. And so the, and the sigma just, that's a technical it's term. It's just a technical term to say how much you have risen right. uh, over a, a relatively short period of two or three years. And uh, they were all rising nicely. Um, and they were rising on a wider basis in 07 than at any time since 1929. And we ran it yesterday. And it was 17%. So the rest of the world simply is not very bubbly. Right. But the US certainly is beginning to show very promising signs. The first six trading days of the year were not just up in a row, which to uh, mavens of the January rule used to be considered very important, the first five trading days. And uh, they were not just up. They were new all-time highs, every single one of them six in a row. And that has never happened in history. So if you were looking for signs of acceleration, right. boy, did the market deliver. Now, it could all be over, and six weeks from now, the market might be down 17%, and uh, so all in, bets would be off. For those of us who pay attention to fundamentals, which you do as well, a lot of reports are coming out of Wall Street now about this synchronized global growth. Accelerating yes. is the way Ed Hyman put it on WealthTrack. And so it's absolutely true. Growth accelerate. That's happening. Now that is, and of course we've had a, earnings are up and we've had a, you know, a corporate, we've had a, had a big tax cut for corporations in this country and consumer optimism is up and unemployment is low and all of these positive yes. things. Isn't that reason enough to have a stock market rally without it be building into a bubble? Um, it's reason enough to have a, a bubble because there's never been a bubble where the fundamentals did not shine. I, I defined a bubble years ago as, as wonderful fundamentals euphorically extrapolated. And it's the extrapolation that does the damage because wonderful fundamentals don't hang around for very long. In 1929, we had the highest increase of industrial production in June, year over year, June of 1929, that we had ever had. It's something like 16% higher industrial production. Mm -hmm. And within a month or two, it started to go down before the market even peaked. And, but it gave you a base for real optimism. How do you, how do you get euphoria? Euphoria, how do you get a bubble? How do you get a melt up without giving something to work with? Right, some fuel. Now, for each of the last nine, 10 years, the forecasts for GDP around the world have spent the whole year declining. So you'd make a forecast in January of last year for 2018, and by the time 2018 has arrived, it's a whole right. lot lower. It but this down. time, for the first time 10, 11 years, the forecast for 2018 around the world is higher than it was 
a year mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. So if you chart that, you get 10 declines and then suddenly a modest uptick. So it's a huge change representing, if you will, in the forecasting business, a dramatic acceleration of a typical forecast. Mm -hmm. Where forecasters are an optimistic group. On average, they over-forecast the GDP, they over-forecast the stock market, they over-forecast everything. But in this rare case, uh, they have under-forecast. So the global GDP is in sync, it's accelerated, and the forecasts are wonderfully better than normal. <clears throat> so you're giving it some material. So is it possible all of the uh, circumstances that you're describing and all of the indications don't actually result in a market melt-up, that in fact it's just going to be a, relative, a more normal cycle, that, the, that we could have you know, sm smaller corrections, that that it, it doesn't have to You be. have to bear in mind, we have never had a bull market that lasted for longer than 10 years, and we're yes. now in year 10. Right. So if you want to hear yourself saying, why can't we have another nice gradual four or five years, you also have to say, why can't we have a 50% longer stock market cycle than mm -hmm. we have ever had in history. Well, perhaps it's because of monetary policy. I mean, the fact is that we've had extremely loose monetary policy. That's been unprecedented. No, no. It was and unprecedented to go from 16% long bonds to 3%. Yes. And the quantitative at three, easing and... At 3 we're not going anywhere in a hurry. Right. So that enormous wind in the sail has disappeared. If we now look into the future and say, we've had 20 years of interest rates coming down to negative after inflation, and let's agree that it's much more likely in the next 10 or 20 years that they will at least drift back a bit to more historically normal rates, right. then you have changed something extremely important. And if it was to happen fairly fast, because inflation kicked in, and inflation, of course, might kick in, because the labor market has never been this tight. Let me pick a number, three to one. Mm -hmm. You come back in 10 years, you'll have higher rates and higher inflation than you have today because it's a very low hurdle now. Right. We have incredibly low inflation and low rates. And, and if that is true, if we do, you can be pretty certain that the price of all real assets will have come down to mm -hmm. reflect that. Mm -hmm. So the, the old 60-40 portfolio where you have 60% US equity and 40% US bonds, has had a wonderful, wonderful time since 2000, to right. say the least. Right. But the 40, the bond part of that, is going to have a very tough 10 or 20 years. Yeah. And the equity market is faced with the problem that the US is expensive, the rest of the world is not. So a 60-40 portfolio that favors the US makes it very, very hard to do, to do that well. It's so hard to convince people of that because, as you just said, that mix in the U.S. Wonderful. has been wonderful. But you have to understand why has it been wonderful. Right. It's been wonderful because rates have spent 20 years coming yes. down. Yes. So that takes care of the 40. Why has it been wonderful? Because we're ending at some of the highest PEs in history on the U.S. equity market. That makes the 60 wonderful. And if you think those both can go on forever, by all means, <laughs> be confident. But uh, so it's unlikely. As a value investor, uh, and, and you know, some of your fans who follow you regularly have said that they have been, they've been surprised that you haven't been raising the alarm about a melt-up, but that in fact that, that you're not saying everybody should just sell stocks, head for the cover, 
equities are just too expensive to own, kind of period, kind of no matter where you look. But you're not saying that. Well, this is what we're saying. From a value perspective, it's fairly straightforward. You can value U.S. equities. You can value emerging equities. Emerging countries are relatively very cheap. Even absolutely, they're not bad. The U.S. market is extremely overpriced. We can be pretty certain if you lock away the U.S. equity market, two things will happen. You will not make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, in my not with a bang but a whimper thesis, we slowly drift back towards the normal old ratios that we loved and lived with for so long. Mm-hmm. And, and you make maybe a couple of percent real return after inflation mm-hmm. in U.S. equities over a 20-year horizon. Wow. That will kill right, pension right. funds. But, but that is relatively favorable because I have it only going back two-thirds of the way. Most of the value people that I know would like it to go back 100% of the way. Mm-hmm. But the world has changed in, in, in many important ways, I think. So You're saying there's a 90% chance, I right, am of saying a, if, of we a, if we have a melt-up of a big decline of, what, 50 if, or 60% in the S&P? If we go up 25 to 35% in a hurry, right. nine months, a year, 18 months, um, and, and we do it accompanied by all the euphoria that we saw in 2000, mm-hmm. which is beginning to come along nicely with Bitcoin and the rest of it, mm-hmm. if that multiplies, if we have an IPO window would be a perfect example, if we see offerings, right? deals, new deals hitting new records all over the front pages, that right. would be perfectly typical. If we have a nice satisfactory mix of the indicators of enthusiasm as well, and the price accelerates into my range, then yes, you're facing a very, very high probability, I think. The struggle in my brain is between the value part, which is looking at the data and saying, for a long-term holder, you're going to do badly, and then the historian saying, but these are such special cases. Mm-hmm. How often do we have nine years or seven, eight, nine years in a row that starts to bubble away? And the answer is, well, you had one in the 20s, and it boomed beautifully, and it bust beautifully. Right. Pardon the expression. Mm-hmm. You had one in the 90s, it did exactly the same, and you had one in the 50s, mm-hmm. which did not. Mm-hmm. The war ended with everything so cheap, oh, right. with such special situations, situations. with lots of eager young soldiers coming back into the workforce with everyone having four children and everything boomed. Right. And so you could have nine or ten terrific years in a row. From that base. From that base. Right. And in 1955, the market had been wonderful, but it wasn't that expensive. There was no euphoria worth talking about. It was clearly not a bubble. So what do we do as investors then in in a situation like this. You've got to say, if this happens, what am I going to right. do? Right. And so in this case, if this market meltdown happens, what do we do? So it's pretty easy. Um, if you want to be a value long-term buyer and you don't have the heart to play short-term events and you're not interested in these rare historical events, why should you be? It's pretty simple. You, you move your money to what is the only area really that will give you a very high probability of a respectable return, which is emerging markets. If you've got some left over, you can put a minority into non-US uh, developed markets, what we would call EFA in the trade, and, um, and keep quite a decent cash reserve up your sleeve uh, in case we bump into a nasty downdraft. And, and let me say that I am giving you my personal view. This is not 
GMO party line, yes. which is easily available uh, and, and is addressed to institutions, and now I'm addressing individuals. Yes. I would put as much as I dare into emerging markets. I told my colleagues a year ago before Christmas I was putting my sister's pension fund, which I write about from time to time, and my children 50% into emerging. And that sounds very rash, but I regret not having done more because it was a very cheap, absolute opportunity, and relatively, it was off the scale mm -hmm. cheaper than, than the alternatives. And that was in December of 16, I think, of 2016. Yes, December 16. And if you're presented in a world where everything is overpriced except one thing that is really perfectly fine, diversification is a snare and a delusion, isn't it? You have to go for the cheap asset and put as much as you can. As you can there, tolerate. As you can tolerate. Right. And the emerging market is an index of, I don't know, 30 countries. Surely that's diversified enough. Right. And one intriguing thing that you said for people who wish to speculate during this period of time, you actually, what you just defined it as a small hedge yes. of momentum stocks. Yes, a small hedge against having a too conservative, fuddy-duddy portfolio. What is the best hedge against regret, a regret minimizing strategy. <laughs> and that is to have a small component, just enough to make you feel better that you didn't do nothing. You did something about it. And that is to own a couple of percent of high momentum stocks. It doesn't matter if they're fangs. It doesn't matter if they're US. It doesn't matter if they're Chinese. That is not the point. The very point is own the favorites that are moving and if they have terrific fundamental progress as well, as many of them do, uh, so much the better. But it's hard to do because you have to answer the question, what if this? What if the market goes up to my range of 3,400, 3,800 on the S&P? What am I going to do? I have just made 65% in extra in Apple and, and Tencent. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do? You have to write it down and do it. You have to have a battle plan. So what are if you going to do? If that happens, I am going to take... Between 3,400 and 3,800, the little bit of... The hedge that you the have hedge in that I have put sense. on in the Grantham Foundation, we will start to take off steadily through that range. And if the market starts to get trashed, we will jump. And this is very hard for amateurs. Mm -hmm. This is very hard for professionals. It is, right. And, um, but we are in the process of doing precisely that. What if this? What do we do? You've got to detail it down and, uh, and do it. And if you don't think you can do that, buy some emerging, hunker down, and live to fight another day. Mm -hmm. uh, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, what would you have us all on some of? Emerging, of course. And um, it's convenient. You can buy an index. It's cheap to do that. And uh, it's capable of performing very much better than anything else. Over the next, again, long five, yes. six, When it's ten cheap, years. it's tended to brilliantly outperform. When it's expensive, it's taken some incredible nosedives. Jeremy Grantham, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thank you.
At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's Action Point picks up on Jeremy Grantham's advice. It is consider having some exposure to emerging market stocks. Emerging markets as a whole have lagged the U.S. markets in the recovery since the Great Recession. They are growing faster because their economies are less mature and their populations are younger. These markets are volatile, but it's worth having some exposure to their potential growth over the long haul. Among Morningstar's favorite actively managed diversified emerging markets fund is the silver medalist T. Rowe Price Emerging Markets Stock Fund. And among passively managed index funds is bronze medalist Vanguard Emerging Market Stock Index Funds. Its exchange-traded fund equivalent is the Vanguard FTSE Emerging Markets ETF. Now, Morningstar cautions, however, that both Vanguard funds are based upon an index that now has a sizable exposure to mainland China, something to be aware of. Well, next week, we focus on the U.S. again with two top bond fund managers, FBA New Incomes Tom Atterbury and Mackay Municipal Managers Bob DeMella, to find income and absolute and tax-free returns. Meanwhile, to hear Jeremy Grantham's views on investing in companies addressing climate change, go to the extra feature on our website. And please continue to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.